I know we went through some hard things last week, so thanks for coming back. Um, this, as you know, in Esther 4, we will be hitting the most quoted verse out of all of the book of Esther. One of my favorite verses, and possibly for all of you all, in all of scripture. So an exciting night ahead of us. So let's read four together, and then we will dive right in. So this is Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatash, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatash went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Atash went to Esther and told what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatash and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that if the king's, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. 
Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we are so thankful for this evening. Lord, we thank you again for your word, the beauty of your word, Lord, what we can glean from your word. I pray that as we approach this chapter tonight, Father, you give us eyes to see all that you have for us, ears to hear, Lord, um, but not only to hear, to understand, and Father, hearts to obey. Father, I pray that you use this chapter to reveal both your heart for us and your call for us. Lord, because I know we more we are more ready to do your call, Lord, when we understand your heart. I thank you for that, Lord, and I praise you for this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. So verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. So he, when he hears what is about to happen to his people, this is his response. So let's take a second to review here and get us in the correct place in this story, and then we're going to hit exactly what he had just learned. So if you remember, this entire story started in the third year of King Ahasuerus's reign. We also know, you all, that it was in that year that Vasti got removed. And if you remember, removed and saved at the same time. I think that's pretty amazing. I think that shows that she's a type of the church. And I think it's quite interesting that it happened on the third year. You all, that third should really um, hit you every time you read it or see it in the scripture. Several years pass after this point. Um, The idea has been put forth when Vasti is removed to bring a new king to take her place to take her place for Ahasuerus. So several years go by during this time. There's all the Greco-Persian wars that we went over, and then all these girls are brought into the court. Many people think it was probably around 400. They go through a year of preparation and education before they have their night with the king. Esther's night was in the seventh year of the king's reign. She goes in, and as we know, God just gave her favor with this man, and his heart was turned to her, and he made her king. And we know why, or made her queen, we know why she had to become the queen, because something was coming of which she had no idea. Mordecai had no idea. So Mordecai, by this time, had an important position in the court because he was at the king's gate. Um, At this point, he overhears of a plan for the king's life by a few of his eunuchs. He takes that plan, reveals it to Esther. Esther takes it to the king. It is investigated, found to be true, and those men were put on the gallows. And what Mordecai did, as we know, was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. So, right after that, the king promotes Haman to the top position of authority in Persia right under him. And not long after that, you all, we know the king actually gives him his ring, which is pretty much giving him 
the same authority as the king himself. So Haman, who is so angry with Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow to him, does not respect him, he comes up with a plan to not only get rid of Mordecai, but to use it as an opportunity to get rid of all of the Jewish people. And this is his plan. So he rolls the pure. He gets other people to roll the dice to come up with the best time to execute this plan. And then once he gets the answer he wants, he takes this plan to the king. I believe manipulatively lays out this plan, does not even tell the king who he's dealing with. Obviously, we know the king doesn't ask, but the king agrees to it. Haman is allowed to write this decree in any way he chooses. So imagine this decree. One day, a year from this, one day, all the Jews in the Persian kingdom, and again, in your map, this was a huge kingdom. All the Jews, men, women, and children were allowed to be killed, destroyed, annihilated. It's always written in threes. And their plunder was allowed to be taken. So there is going to be a year for these people to live under this decree. There's going to be a year for everyone else to be thinking about what they might do on that day. Uh, Just imagine that, you all. If you were a Jew and your next-door neighbor is not, all year long, could your neighbor be eyeing your property, thinking about that day? This, this is horrific. We, we cannot read this too fast to miss what is going on here and the year these people were going to go through. So Mordecai learns all this. And we know that he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he puts on ashes. So I want to take each of these things, you all, because again, and I know for me, I I read through that so quick, I, I don't realize we're talking about three different things, tearing clothes, putting on sackcloth, um, sprinkling of ashes, okay? Three different things that signify different things. So, the tearing of the clothes. We're going to see sometimes these things are done independently. Sometimes there's a combination of two of them. A lot of times you hear sackcloth and ashes together. Very rarely, though, are all three together. So, I find that interesting. So, the tearing of the clothes. This was an ancient Jewish tradition associated with sorrow, anguish, grief, and loss. Whatever Mordecai's motivation for finally revealing who he was, okay, for not bowing to Haman, for showing that he was a Jew, whatever reason he did that, you all, it was done, and now this was the result, this decree. Uh, imagine the anguish he felt. For your first connection here, 
in Genesis 37, when you read this passage, I have you're going to find the first mention of someone tearing their clothes. And again, it is a very sad story. Someone does something that causes them great anguish. So read through that for the first mention. And then after that, I have several passages for you to show where other people have torn their clothes. In Samuel, we know that David tears his clothes when he hears of the death of both Saul and Jonathan. Saul, his enemy, and he still tears his clothes. Um, Second Kings, Elisha, when he witnesses Elijah being taken up to heaven. In Job, you all, he tears his clothes after his fourth, fourth um, report of bad news. And, and in that story in Job 1, if you read that carefully, you all, every time someone comes to give him news of something awful, the, the words say, while he was still speaking, another messenger comes. While he was still speaking, another messenger comes. While he was still speaking. And the last message is that his children just died. Oh, you all. And he tears his clothes. Um, in Judges, where Jephthah learns the outcome of a rash vow that he made. If you're not familiar with that story, you all read that. This should speak volumes of making vows. We need to be very, very careful. This is why Jesus said, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay? Don't, do not make vows. Um, and this is an example of that. And then in Acts 14, 14, this is an interesting one, you all. Um, people wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas, and it caused them such anguish they tore their clothes. Man, that doesn't happen much today, does it? No. <sighs> Whew. People seem to enjoy being worshipped. Um, okay, so that's tearing of the clothes. Next is putting on sackcloth. Sackcloth is a very coarse material made out of goat's hair, so it's very uncomfortable. And you would take off your regular clothing and put this on usually at a time of mourning, a time of death, um, to show heartfelt sorrow for the loss of someone. So if you continue reading that Genesis passage where you have the first mention, a few verses later you're going to get a combination of someone who tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth, and these stories are connected, okay? And then I've got a few other examples for you of where people tear, tear their clothes and put on sackcloth. And one of these, you all, we went over in 1 Kings where we have Ahab. Ahab, remember when we talked about him taking the garden from Naboth? And Elijah comes and tells him what his punishment's going to be. And he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth. And um, in so doing, you all, God gives him more time. The judgment that was put on Ahab still happens, but it does buy him several more years before it comes to pass. Next, we have ashes. Ashes often accompany sackcloth in times of personal and 
national disaster. It's a sign of repentance for sin and a time of prayer for deliverance. Um, so several places here where people are putting on sackcloth and ashes, um, one in Nehemiah, one in Daniel. So as you go through all of these, if you so choose this week, just start comparing why are people doing certain things, who are these people, which are of these things are they doing, and what is it showing about their heart, okay? What does it show about their heart? Um, because all of these things, you all, are outward signs of an inward condition, outward signs of an inward condition. They symbolized a change of heart and sincerity. And we often will see that these things, you all, move the hand of God. And not because they're doing certain things. We can't get into that trap. Oh, I'm going to do this and God's going to do this. That's not how it works. It's because these things these people were doing show humility to God and a sincerity in asking for his mercy in a situation. In this instance, Haman, or Haman, not Haman, Mordecai is doing all three of them together. And there might be more instances of where someone does all three, uh, but I found one that was quite interesting, you all, and it is the king of Nineveh. The king of Nineveh. So think about that situation. The king of the largest empire at that time, the Assyrian Empire. Jonah comes saying, you have this many days and judgment is coming. You will all be wiped out. And a pagan king, a pagan king believes him and seeks God's deliverance and mercy by tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes. Not only that, has everybody else in Nineveh to do it, and has sackcloth put on all the animals. <laughs> I think he's serious. And we know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, what would this look like? Um, God relents. Oh, because it was sincere. But think of the gravity of that situation, all the Assyrians, very similar to this, you all, all of the Jews, all of the Jews. So, alone, each of these things signifies something powerful, but together, we see the gravity of what is happening. So, in, well, Again, you all seem to keep doing this with you all. In your connection, you can read about everything I just told you about Jonah and the king of Nineveh. <laughs> so, in the application, here's what I would suggest. More important, you all, than outward shows of grief and sorrow for sin and repentance are sin and repentance of the heart. And in Joel, he tells us, Rend your heart and not your garments. 
saying the outward is not enough. God requires more than outward expressions, you all. He requires true sincerity, true repentance. So just think about this week, you all. How do you grieve over personal sin? Does it even make you grieve? What about national sin? Does that ever bring you to a place of grief? Should it? Or are we all just going through our lives not thinking about this? Y'all, there is a time to grieve. There is a time to mourn. There is a time to lament. This walk is not all about joy. <laughs> There's a, it, there is a time where he turns all that into joy. Thank God. But there is a time to mourn. Things should cause us to mourn and to grieve. So think through that this week. Um, then it says Mordecai cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So we know that in both his dress and his behavior, he is not hiding his anguish. And then it says in verse 2, he goes to the entrance of the king's gate. So not only is he not hiding you all, he's going to the most public place in the city doing these things. Okay? So he's calling some attention to himself. So he goes here, and it says he can't go into the king's gate because no one is allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Ladies, clothing has always been and is still today a means to communicate. And we can communicate a lot of things with our clothing. So we're going to take a few minutes here to dive in a little bit to clothing. I told you when we were in Ruth, we would do that. We got a little glimpse of clothing when we did Ruth, when we talked about, do you all remember the garment of the skirt and what all that meant and what all that signified? In Ruth, clothing is mentioned multiple times, okay? So what I'd like to do, because I am not an expert in Persian court attire, I would like to tell you a few things about English court attire, which I actually do know a few things about, at least during the Tudor reign, okay? And if you're familiar with the Tudor reign in England, that's a lot of some famous monarchs. Henry VIII, who gave, he was the one with the six wives, if you know that story. He gave birth to Elizabeth, who was Elizabeth I, and also Mary, who became Bloody Mary. So this was a very very um, um, infamous, infamous line of monarchs, okay? Under Henry VIII, you had a lot of what was called sumptuary laws. And what these laws were, you all, by definition, it was to regulate consumption, okay? Usually dealing with things of luxury, But what these laws really did, you all, was keep everybody in their place. They dictated what people could wear, 
what people could eat, and even what furnishings they could have in their homes, okay? Because in this system, the whole idea was you cannot outdress your station. If you are here, you dress a certain way. If you are here, you dress a certain way. If you are here, you dress a certain way. And nobody dresses like the king, okay? So that when someone came into the court, it was easily apparent who they were, what their position was, what their station was based on what they were wearing. And Henry um, did one, two, three, four. Four of these laws he passed had to do with clothing, okay? And I'm going to give you a few things just out of one of the laws, which was called an act against wearing costly apparel, okay? So, for instance, only the king and his immediate family could wear cloth of purple, silk, or gold. Dukes and marquises could wear have gold woven into their coats and doublets. And the whole idea here is this person could do it, but nobody underneath, okay? So this person could do it and nobody underneath. An earl could wear sable fur, but no one under him. Pages and knights in the queen's chambers were allowed to wear imported wool, but if you were a page to someone else, you could not. Um, a knight of the garter could wear crimson and blue, but no one under him, okay? This also included laws, you all, where married women had to dress differently from unmarried women. And what I find hysterical in this law, prostitutes were supposed to wear certain things so everybody knew who they were. Now, whether they did that or not, I can't imagine because you might as well wear a big sign, but there were laws actually written for this. Again, to keep everyone in their station, everyone in their place. This was at the same time historically, you all, where we had a rise of the merchant class. Um, and merchants at this point, you all, could actually be wealthier than the king. So they had to make sure, even if they had more money, they could never look like they had more money. So this was the whole idea. And if you ever outdressed your station, you got in trouble. That garment that you were wearing would be confiscated, and you all these would be very costly things. If you were in the king's court, everything was provided for you. You had your lodging, you had all your food, pretty much the only thing you paid for was clothes. So clothing was a big deal, okay? And if you lost a garment, it was a big deal. So, of course, eventually you all, all these laws kind of broke down and then every, all these lines got blurred. But this was how the court system was. And I, I would just venture a guess that a lot of courts did the same thing with these rules to make sure no one appeared better than the king. Um, in this, you all, I think, when I think about this, when I, I think about all these rules about clothing, you all, the word clothing, garments, um, raiment, it is in the scripture over 400 times. So I think God wants to tell us something about clothing, okay? 
again, in Ruth, if you remember when I was first teaching you all the law first mentioned, do you remember that? The first time in the Word of God that a word is used or a topic is brought up, that's where you kind of get the essence of the meaning of that word or topic. And then you also have the law of progressive mention, meaning every time after that first time that it's mentioned, you kind of gain more and more insight and meaning into that concept. So if we look up that word, and you might have done this on your own in Ruth, but the word garment, if you remember, the first time it was mentioned is in Genesis 3.21. And if you remember that, ladies, it says this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam. Who made the garments? God. Clothing is not an invention of man. It is an invention of God. Okay? And you might think, oh, that's not the first mention because they made coverings. They took fig leaves. Okay? And that is a different word. (laughs) If we go back to that several verses up, You all, when they sinned, they took fig leaves and they made a covering for themselves. And that word is shagwar. It means a girdle, a belt, or a loincloth. Okay? So think about that. They're making a loincloth out of a leaf. God... If we take that Hebrew word garment, which is kenoeth awar, it is a tunic, long shirt-like garment of an animal hide. You all, that alone tells me a lot. You can look at a kid's book of Adam and Eve, and she's in a bikini top and a miniskirt. Or her hair and a little cute fur miniskirt, okay? And yet this word garment is a tunic? Is it saying that's not enough, your efforts? You cannot cover yourself. You cannot cover your own sin. You need God to intervene and cover. It is worse than what you think. It's worse that your sin is worse than what you think. That is the truth, you all. For all of us, our sin is worse than what we think, and there's nothing we can do about it. We have to depend on him. And and making a fig leaf to cover it didn't didn't meet the requirements of what God told them was going to happen, okay? Because if you remember, he told them, eat of any tree. If you eat of this tree, you will die. Okay? He did that. Some of these will be listed in your takeaways there, you all. We know the wages of sin is death from Romans. When they ate of that, they had their death sentence. They were going to die. Now, in God's mercy... They did not die right then, 
but something else did. Something had to die. And if you think about that, you all, God took an innocent animal, okay? God created those animals. They were precious to him. He said they were good. Adam named all those animals. Do you think they were precious to him? And one had to die for what he did? So a blood sacrifice was made to account for their sin for a time. Well, there is typology all over that. Oh, my goodness. All, all over that. Um, the sacrifice of something innocent to atone for the sin of someone who is guilty. Can it make you see clothing a little more serious? Um, in your next connection here, you all, and you know every one of my connections so far has always been text-to-text, word-to-word, word-to-word. Tonight what I want to give you is a book that I could not suggest more highly. Um, it's called Girls Gone Wise in a World Gone Wild. Um, wild. And I'm going to tell you, other than the Bible itself, there has not been a book that's been more transformational in my personal walk than this book. Um, It's fascinating. The author's name is Mary Cassian. I am a big reader, you all. I read all the time. I have multiple books going on at all times, so I rarely read a book more than once. But I have read this book eight times, and I'm not exaggerating eight times, some of which because I've taught this book, but this is how meaningful it is. And the first time I read this book, I remember throwing it across the room because I got so mad. And I'm like, no way is this true. And then a few days, maybe a week later, I'm like, hmm, maybe it's not the book. Maybe I've got some issues. So I had more issues than I thought. But in this book, what she does... And one of the reasons I love it, you all, is so many women's books, they always use Proverbs 31, which is wonderful, wonderful. That's an awesome passage, but it's this perfect woman. She uses the Proverbs 7 woman, who is a horrible woman, okay? And she, out of those few verses in Proverbs 7, pulls out 20 points of contrast between what it means to be wise as a woman and to be foolish. And she hits everything from what we think about, our attitude, how we use our influence, what we spend our money on, how we spend our time, um, our appearance. And she's got a chapter on clothing that is brilliant. I mean, it is brilliant what all she comes up with. So I... Could not suggest this more. And just to preemptively encourage you, if you throw it across the room, maybe give it one more chance before you give up on it. So, yes. Um, I would say I've never done it with anybody lower than high school because she has some examples of some of these things that are kind of like, oh, 
that I think would be a little much for somebody young. So I would say high school. But what I love is she backs up everything with the word. This isn't some lady's opinions. She is pulling this stuff out of expositional study of the word. I, I think it's fabulous. Um, okay. So in your application, and if you choose to read this, maybe do your application after. If you don't, just you all dig into clothing a little bit out of the scripture, okay? Just get out your concordance, look up some scriptures, a lot of things having to do with clothing in 1 Corinthians that you could look into. And then after that, just think you all for yourself, what parameters do you have where wardrobe is concerned? What goes through your mind when you're thinking about what to wear? Is it even important? Okay, gauge for yourself. Can we wear whatever we want because we're not under the law? Okay. And then most importantly, you all, can you support your thoughts and your opinions with the word of God? That's what we need to get to. This is what we need to get to, which is going to lead us to our next Bible study tip. And for this one, you all, what I would suggest is just intentional reading for application. And what I mean by that is this. There's numerous ways in which we read things, okay? We, we've talked about we read different genres, different ways. We read fiction different from nonfiction, you all. Um, when we first approach anything in the Bible, a book, a letter, a poem, whatever, don't start breaking it down from the very beginning, okay? Because if you go to read a book, you go to read a letter, and then the first letter, the first word, you start looking it up, and then the next word, you start breaking it down, you will never get the context. You'll, you'll lose the whole meaning. The first time you read something is to gain full contextual understanding, okay? Once you do that, then you start breaking it down. And let me tell you, there, there, you can break it down forever, pretty much. But one of the ways in which you can read it, like sometimes I'll go through and I'm just looking up words. Like I'll look up the Hebrew or I'll look up the Greek or whatever and break things down that way. Sometimes you all, I'm specifically reading for application because we know this has something for each of us. Every one of you, Esther chapter 4 has something for each of you, okay? Because that's how this works, okay? So as you're reading for application, what you think about is when you encounter truth, you all, it exposes lies. That's what truth does. Truth exposes lies. So the first thing, you all, is to understand that truth exposes things in ourselves. <laughs> when we read this, we should things see things in our own lives. We're like, oh, maybe I need to do something about that. Maybe I need to fix this. Maybe I need to stop this. Okay? 
truth also exposes things in our culture. Um, you all, most of our culture maligns, discourages, condemns, even ridicules the word of God and the ways of God. Okay? So as we're reading this, we'll start to see some of those things. And what I would suggest as you're reading for application, you all, is to just start journaling what comes to your mind um, because you'll, you'll get something one day and three days later, you'll be like, what was that? What was God telling me with that verse? And, and you can just forget. Just start, just start jotting it down because you're not going to get the answers immediately. You just won't, okay? You, you'll get a question. You'll get an idea of something you might need to do. So just write it down, even date it, okay? Because it's kind of fun when you're in another book months later and then you get that answer. And then you can go back and think, oh. Because here's, here's my thought on these applications, you all. When they are personal applications, um, when things are exposed about ourselves, you all, if it is a habit, an interest, a belief, or an opinion, if it in any way contradicts, intersects, or goes against this, we have got to lay it down. That's what we do. We're not entitled to our own opinions anymore, you all. As followers of Jesus, we're just not. Okay, we go with his opinions. I know that's hard. It is so hard. That's why this book was so hard for me. <laughs> but that is what we do as followers of Christ. And then when it's something about our culture, it's the same thing. Does it contradict? Does it go again against? Does it malign what this says? And if so, what do we do about it with cultural things? Some of those things, you all... God might be saying, yeah, you've got something to do there, okay? Some of those things we have no control over, so he just might be saying, separate yourself from that. Have nothing to do with that, okay? But, but there's usually a takeaway for us, whether it's something in our life or something in our culture. I have a good friend, you all, and she journals everything. My journals are a little more sp sporadic, and I'm kind of jealous because she can find anything that God has ever said to her in her journal, and I think that's fascinating. So, okay, moving on. So in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So as this started spreading throughout the kingdom, you see people reacting in the same way as Mordecai. And I have these words just broken down for you. In your notes, you all, I put Greek. They are Hebrew, so you can scratch through that. Sorry about that. Um, I noticed it after I had sent it off. So mourning, just an expression of deep sorrow. Fasting, we're going to get to in just a minute. Um, weeping, the express, to express passion or grief by shedding of tears, 
I don't know if this means anything, but I found it fascinating because earlier when it says Mordecai, Mordecai cried out with a loud and bitter cry, when I compared those two words and you kind of think they're synonyms, um, crying and weeping, crying has to do with the sound you make and weeping has to do with the tears you shed. Hmm, I didn't know that. Um, lamenting to express regret or deep disappointment over something considered unsatisfactory, unreasonable, or unfair. Definitely appropriate for this situation. So many of them are wearing sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's young women and her eunuchs come to her and she's deeply distressed. So she sends garments to clothe Mordecai so that he can take off his sackcloth and return to what he's do, supposed to be doing, you all, at the gate. Okay? But he refuses. And this is what I believe is happening here, you all. She doesn't know all that's going on. She's just heard Mordecai is doing this. Everybody in the city is doing this. But she doesn't have the details yet. So she sends garments to Mordecai alone. She's doing something for him because she loves him. But his refusal of those garments is like he's saying, oh, this is much bigger than me. And I will not accept this. I will not change because I am making a stand with all my people. Okay? So in verse 5, so then when he refuses them, then she calls Hatash, which is one of the king's eunuchs. So at first, it was her own maids and eunuchs that came to her. But now, it's like she's going up a step and she's sending one of the kings to find out what's going on. So verse 6, Hatash went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gates. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So he gives Hatash every detail so that it can be relayed. And he tells the exact sum of money. So in this, you all, we know, we know he just told him every detail yet the narrator pulls out this one detail, okay? So he, he's not verbally saying all the other details, but he does say the exact sum of money. So why is that one being pinpointed? So for your application, just think about that. You all, whenever something is different in the word, it, it means something. Okay, there's something being communicated here. Does it possibly mean that money plays a larger factor 
in decision making than other things? Can you think of other atrocious acts, you all, of governments based on money and greed? Have you ever made a decision where the primary factor was money and you ended up regretting it? Oh, probably we all have. And then again, most importantly, you all, can you think of some scriptures? Can you write down some scriptures that caution us in this area? That caution us about how we think about money, how we prioritize money, or how we use our money. Okay, it's all in here. Just like clothing, it's all in here. You all, wherever our struggles are, the answers are in the word. We just need to find them. So he says, he gives her a copy. So now she has not only Mordecai's words, she has written proof of everything that is happening. Then it says to explain it to her and command her. So Mordecai is sending both an explanation and instructions for her. Now, if you remember in previous chapters, she's always done what Mordecai has said. Okay, every, every time Mordecai suggests it and she does it. Okay, now she's the queen. Now she's the queen. She, she wouldn't have to anymore. She was under his guardianship. Now she's the queen of Persia. Okay, so could it be tempting to not do it? Okay, just think through some of these things. She, we know you all, she's protected somewhat in her own little world uh, because she didn't even know what all was going on. So she might really feel some level of, well, I'm going to be okay no matter what happens. Okay, and that could be a temptation, okay, to not do something when he's asking her to. So, in this, you all, just some other personal questions to think about. Are we ever so secure in our own safety that we don't give thought to others who are not? And if Esther felt like she was going to be saved from this, you all, because she's the queen, are we ever so complacent in our own salvation that we don't think about the damnation of so many others? <coughs> you all, what she's doing here and this choice she is about to make is a choice we all make. If we are saved, we are safe. We are safe from the wrath to come. Are we going to be silent in our safety and our salvation? Or are we going to do something? So Mordecai says, plead with him on behalf of her people. So now Esther's ethnicity is known. If Atash didn't know before that she was a Jew, he does know now. Okay, and he is one of the king's eunuchs. So Hatash went to 
Esther and tells her everything that Mordecai has said. So now she's fully aware of everything that is going on. Verse 10. So Esther speaks to Hatash and commands him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that they may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. Ooh, there's a lot in here, you all. So, when she says all the king's servants and all the people and all the king's provinces know, she's pretty much saying, and you all, I think we see her struggle here. I think we see her anguish. She's like, Mordecai, everyone knows this. Everyone in the court knows this. Everyone in the entire empire knows this. If I go uninvited and, and the king doesn't want to see me, that's it. You all, for the death sentence, the king doesn't even have to do anything. He has to do something to save you. If he just sits there, that's it. He has to put a gesture. He has to say, it's okay for you to be here. And we know how volatile he is. We've seen it all throughout the book so far. Everybody knows what he did with Vashti. Okay, so she is on very dangerous ground. And not only that, you all, she hasn't even been called to him for 30 days. We know Ahasuerus had a lot of women. Okay? He had numerous concubines. Some of them could have been wives because in the harems there were there was the queen, there were secondary wives. Okay? And if you remember last week in chapter 3, Virgins were brought for the second time. Okay? So we don't even know how many new came in at that point. So she hasn't been called to him for 30 days. He's probably been busy with other women. And now she's just going to show up uninvited about something really serious. Imagine that fear, you all, that she would be feeling, okay? And then Mordecai, who loves her, is the one asking her to do it. The one who loves her asking her to do hard things. Imagine that. So, verse 12. And they told Mordecai all that Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So, not very encouraging response. Any false sense of security she had 
would have been gone here. He's saying, you're not going to be safe either. You know, don't have any false pretense. Um, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Oh. I know we have probably all thought about this verse, quoted this verse, read this verse. Think about her situation, you all. Have we ever faced something as dire as this? Probably not. Um, when Esther has a choice here, you all, because she is the queen. She could choose to stay silent, choose to not rock the boat, choose to not go into the king, choose to sit back, and it might buy her a little bit of time. Okay? Chances are it, it would still cost her later, but it could personally buy her some time. So she has to decide. And Mordecai's faith here, you all, <laughs> which is just beautiful, he's saying, if you don't go, deliverance is still coming. Relief is coming to the Jews. How did he know that? Because he knows his history. How many times has God saved the Jewish people? Over and over and over because he has an everlasting covenant with them. They will not perish, you all. I don't care what attempts are tried that have been tried that are going to be tried. Nobody is going to wipe out the Jewish people because God is going to protect him because that's what his promise was. The only nation on this earth that God has an everlasting covenant with. And they will not be destroyed. So he's saying, if you choose to be silent, relief is going to come. God is going to save us. Okay? He knows that. But you all, he also knows that that covenant with the nation does not guarantee his personal or Esther's personal salvation. There is a difference between the nation and the individual. You all, God is going to save the nation of Israel. He has a plan for them. It's not finished yet. It is a beautiful plan. It's a hard plan. Oh, they have a hard road to walk, you all. But it ends up beautiful. Every individual within that nation still has a personal choice of salvation. Okay? That is why we, you all, are called to pray for the Jews. To pray for the Jews. We're to witness to Jews just like we do to lost people, you all. They don't have Jesus yet. They have a beautiful covenant 
but they're not saved until they make that personal choice just like us, okay? So he's saying this nation is going to be saved, but that doesn't mean you will be. doesn't mean I will be, okay? So Esther, now you all, has the choice of what she is going to do with this. And these words, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Y'all, this line, sign, sums up the sovereignty of God in all of our lives. In all of our lives. And as I was thinking about this, and if we review very quickly again from the very first night we started on Esther when we talked about how you um, look at a historical book in the Bible and we talked about the principle of harmony and the principle of history. Do you all remember this? Principle of harmony. When you're reading a historical book, we need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. The best interpreter of this is Scripture itself. If you don't understand something, you need to dig into other scripture to find the meaning of it, okay? Outside things, scripture to interpret scripture. That's harmony. With history, we have to remember that God tells his story of redemption through the story of people, and we're messed up. (laughs) So things happen, you all. There's some... Ugly things that happen in here (laughs) because the story is told through cultural and historical times with real people doing what humans do, okay? So as we're looking at this, remember we have to decide what is cultural expression in these books. What are things that just change? They change from culture to culture. They change from age to age. And what in these books is central revelation? And what I'm going to suggest is this verse, you all, this is the epitome of central revelation. This is for each and every one of us. I don't think any of us will be the next queen of Persia. But we are all made for our time. And as you think of your application this week, you all, a couple things. First, we'll do connection. I I was thinking about Ruth. Well, just review that story of Ruth. Could this verse be plugged into the book of Ruth? Mm -hmm. And I think I know exactly where I would put it, but... You can think of that on your own. Just pick anybody you love to read about in the Bible. Could this verse be said of them? Where in their story would be a great place to put it? Think through some of these people you want and kind of plug that in. And then for us, this just shows God's sovereignty, you all. None of us... None of us decide when we are born, where we are born, to whom we are born. Three pretty pretty big factors in our lives. Would you all agree? 
and we have no power over any of those things. That is God's sovereignty in our lives, choosing those things for us to bring about his plans and purposes. He's got a plan for each of you all to be living in 2020, okay? And this is very encouraging to me as a mom because this is a hard time to raise kids, okay? They are dealing with things I never had to deal with, <sighs> things at their fingertips that other kids had to go sneak and all kinds of stuff to get to, okay? They, they've got it right there. I mean, it, and it's getting worse, and it will get worse according to Revelation, and yet... God made me a mom in 2020. What does that tell me? He's going to give me what I need, you all, to be a mom in this day and age. And then my children living in it, guess what? He's going to give them what they need. They were born for such a time as this as well. You all, that, oh, that should give us hope. <laughs> no matter what is going on, you all, it is no accident, no accident that you are living today, okay? But you still have a choice of what to do with it. He does have a plan and a purpose for each of us. And if you need some proof of that, Psalm 139, you all, Pay special attention to verses 13 through 16. Some of my favorite verses. I know I say that a lot, but I've got a lot of favorites. Um, oh, that gives you just some hope and, and some courage because it is no accident when you were born and what you have to deal with. But it is also your choice just like it was Esther's what you do with it if you decide to do something at all and here is my firm belief you all he has a plan and a purpose for every individual everyone if we choose to back out of it I'm not going to do the part he's made me to play. He's going to rise up somebody else to do it. And somebody else is going to do my part, and they're going to get my reward. <sighs> he's got a plan for each of us, and we can step into it, or we can bow out of it, but his plans are going to come to pass. His purposes are going to happen we get to decide how much of it we want to be a part of. And you all, we can be a part of a lot. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> the, the opportunities are unending, but we still have to step into it. In Isaiah 14, 27, it says, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, who will annul it? Oh, you all, the answer is no one. <laughs> no one will annul his plans. His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Mm 
not me. <laughs> His plans and purposes are going to happen. Ladies, we get to be a part of them. And that is exciting. So exciting. So verse 15. So Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. My young women and I will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So she says to hold a fast. Um, we're going to dig into fasting in just a minute, but for right now, just know that it is voluntary abstinence from food. And we'll get into this. For three days. Again, you all, here's that number three. Again, it should spark something in you. Okay, three is something special. Three days, she is going to fast. Her young women and herself. Y'all, she's setting an example for everyone. She's the queen. She's the queen. She can do whatever she wants. She could order her women to fast and not fast herself. Okay? She's not asking anybody to do something that she's not willing to do herself. And then... I'll go to the king. So when is the then? It's going to be the third day. The third day. Awesome things happen on the third day. We'll dig into that a little more next week. If I perish, I perish. So we see while she is willing to risk her life for the lives of her people. In Daniel 3, 14 through 18, um, if you choose to read that this week, you all look at the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they are condemned to the fiery furnace. If you're not familiar with it, read what they say. It's awesome. Oh, and it reminds me of Esther's response here. You all, this resolve, this courage to do hard things without knowing the outcome without knowing the outcome I know for me you all and I'm just speaking for myself here sometimes I don't want to step out until I'm pretty sure I know what the outcome is going to be you know, this is not what they were doing this is not what Esther did this is not what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did they stepped out to do very hard things, things that would cost them their life without knowing the outcome. That's what faith is, trusting that God, whatever, whatever the outcome is, okay, trusting is in the one who brings that outcome to pass, not the outcome itself. So she's going to fast for three days. And, you know, I just believe this shows her own faith, believing that at the end of this time, she's going to have an answer, she's going to have a plan, and she's going to have the courage to do it. Okay? I believe we should also have high expectations of fasting. There is not a discipline 
in the Word of God, you all, that goes more radically against our culture and our own selfish <laughs> desires than fasting. Fasting is mentioned 77 times in the Scripture. So again, I think it's important because if we hold that up to baptism, baptism is mentioned 75 times. So fasting is mentioned more. So again, I think God is trying to tell us something when he gives us things over and over and over. I've got five points here for you all to consider on fasting. I could have easily done 10. You could think of 20. But here's just five to get you going, okay, in case you haven't tried this practice in your life. The first, you all, is that fasting is expected. It is expected. It's not a suggestion. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus said, when you pray, and then if you know that passage, you all, for the next few verses, he explains kind of this is what you do when you pray, this is what you don't do, and then he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, okay? But the whole thing is when you pray, do it this way, okay? Saying you're going to do it, so when you do it, do it this way. In Matthew 6.16, he says, when you fast. I don't think any of us doubt that we're supposed to be praying, that we probably pray every day. We know that's part of our life as a Christian. And yet when it comes to fasting, we want to say, oh, God hasn't told me. <laughs> he, hasn't, he hasn't revealed that one to me yet. Well, kind of did. Um, Second, there's biblical precedent for fasting in order to more clearly discern the will of God. And many places for that you all. I've just got a few for you. But in both Old and New Testament, in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, when they have to choose and appoint elders for the church, you all, they pray and fast, believing God is going to give them guidance of who those new elders are going to be. In 2 Chronicles, we actually have a king who proclaims a fast for all of Judah. Remember, Judah's the southern kingdom. So that they can seek help and wisdom from the Lord before they go into battle. Okay? So there's precedence, you all. When we need guidance in a situation, when there's something in front of us and we do not know what to do, guess what we have at our disposal? Fasting. Now this, again, you all, it doesn't guarantee, oh, I'm going to fast for three days and I'm going to get that answer. You know, it, it doesn't. It might take longer than that. But you all, it, it is putting ourselves in a place to hear him. Okay. And it is not, Kevin said these words last week when he preached, and he did a whole sermon on this years ago, you all, and it was truly life-changing for me. He said, if there's something you don't want to do, change in your vocabulary the words have to, to get to. That was mind-blowing to me. I do that all the time now when there's things I don't want to do. 
I get to go wash the dishes? <laughs> and I'm going to tell you when this really hit me because this, this is for real. This is how this worked in my life. There was one night, it was close to midnight. My girls were already asleep. This was years ago. We didn't have Michael yet. And I realized none of their uniforms were clean for the next day. So I knew I had to go do laundry, and I was tired. I just wanted to go to bed. So I went down. I started the laundry. So I went and fall asleep. I actually brought up some dirty clothes with me from the next um, load, and I actually put them right here <laughs> so I wouldn't fall asleep or I would wake up. So the, the, I hear the buzzer go off, and I wake back up. I was asleep. So I walk downstairs. I start doing the laundry, and I'm like, i got to do the laundry. And those words went through my head. Just change, you have to, till you get to. And I, I literally started saying, I get to do the laundry of a husband who treats me so awesome, more awesome than I deserve. I get to do the laundry of two girls that I love. And you all, I have friends that would give anything for children and they don't have them and I get to do the laundry of two kids <laughs> you all it just by the end of that I'm folding the laundry and I'm, it really changed that in me and you all that is something I did with fasting as well it used to be some oh gosh I really don't want to do this. I know I have to, but I really don't want to do this. You know, just change those words. If it's a struggle for you, just change it. We get too fast. We, it's something we get to do. We get to show our king that he is more important to us than food, than something we want every day. We get to put ourselves in a position where we're going to hear him more clearly because our body isn't using all its energy doing other stuff. Right. You all, there's a reason for this, and it is something we get to do. And if you haven't tried it yet, no guilt, no condemnation, just try it. Just start it. Just start. Right. Um, next point to consider, fasting helps to strengthen us against temptation. It also helps to prepare us for ministry. These are huge things, you all. Man, fasting does a lot. And the verse there in Matthew is Jesus as the example of both of these things. You all, he just came off of a 40-day fast when he is going to get the direct onslaught of Satan against him, tempting him with the entire world. I'll give you the entire world and you don't have to go to the cross. What a temptation that would be. <laughs> but he had just fasted. Oh, you all, he was ready for that temptation. And then during that fast, you all, is also when he dedicated himself to the Father for his ministry. That was powerful time. Um, four, biblical fasting is always in reference to food. Always. I know it's very um, 
common these days and popular these days. I'm going to fast social media. I'm going to fast my phone. I'm going to fast television. I'm going to fast this. I'm going to fast that. And I am not saying that is a bad thing to do. I think it's an awesome thing to do. I, I think it can teach you discipline and sacrifice that will go into many areas of your life. But you don't need any of those things for survival. You might feel like it sometimes, but you don't. <laughs> the only thing you need for survival is food and water. And the whole point of it being food is saying, I need that to survive, but there's something I need even more than that, and it's you. And then finally, fast. a fast will make us hungry. That's what a fast should do. It makes you hungry, you all. And when you get hungry during a fast, this is what you feed on. This, which is called the bread of life. How awesome. This. So, I have in my notes here, because I wanted to tell you, if you wanted more information on this, to listen to Shaney's teaching from... If you didn't get to hear her several years ago at the retreat on fasting, it was incredible. Unfortunately, I hate to throw it out there because you can't listen to it. But I, I will say this, you all. We've, we've got three more weeks in this class. Okay? Then we have two weeks off, okay? There's spring break and a church-wide prayer. And then after that, you all, Shaney is going to lead a Bible study doing expositional study on two different letters of the New Testament. And if you, oh, one letter, one letter of the New Testament. And if you have not heard her teach, she is a phenomenal teacher. So I just want to encourage you all. Sandy has the entire year planned out, you all, of Bible studies, the whole year. Give yourself a year in this. Give yourself a year and see if you don't start 20 21, oh my gosh, better than you did 2020. No matter where you are in your walk, you'll start out better. Just give it a year. Just give it a year. And if you have questions on fasting, I'm sure she doesn't mind giving you some insight. Um, it, it was a great teaching on fasting. So verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So here you all, we get a reversal. Up until now, Mordecai says something and Esther does it. He gives a suggestion and she does it. Now we have Esther, and I believe the words were command, commanding Mordecai to do something. Okay? And in this, you all, we're going to see he not only does everything, he does it without questioning. No questions asked here, you all. He does it. I believe this shows humility and willingness to follow as well as lead. As her guardian... He would have been used to having the leadership position in their relationship. And now, because circumstances have changed, he follows her leadership. 
It implies reciprocal trust. They value each other's advice and suggestions because they trust each other. There, oh, there is a lot, many avenues we could go down with this one, you all. This is a beautiful truth in marriage, um, in that relationship. But think through a few things. This is your last application this week. Varying circumstances and applications call for us to assume varying roles and different responsibilities. And what I want you to think about, you all, is your home, church, community, workplace. Also think about your relationships in terms of your marriage, your friends, your co-workers, co-laborers in ministry. Because he, here's the deal, you all. We do not always, nor should we want, to always be the leader. Sometimes we need to submit to the leadership of others. And at the same time, we can't always sit back and never step up expecting somebody else to do everything. So there's different places, you all, where we got to step into some leadership to get some things done. There's some places we need to step back so other people can rise up, so other people can do some things, and then we need to submit, okay? So all kinds, you know, we're not the same everywhere. We're just not. We're not, we're not the same. When I, I am in a place of submission to my husband in our home, and I know that can rock people, but it's a beautiful thing, you all, if you dig into it. But that doesn't mean I'm under the submission of all other men. Some people take things that are in here for certain places and want to paint this broad stroke brush over everything, and it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Um, I've had jobs where I've had positions of authority over men. And that's a-okay in the workplace, okay? But it's not in my home, okay? It's different in a home, from a church, from a workplace. And you all, we need to get some understanding of these things so that we act appropriately in them. And that we step up and also sometimes step back when it's appropriate. So in that, as you're thinking through these things, you all, are either of these roles more difficult for you? Is it harder for you to lead or is it harder for you to follow? Why? Um, and then, again, what can we learn from both Mordecai and Esther in both of these areas? leadership and following so at the end she is telling Mordecai to gather all the Jews found in Susa y'all Susa was the capital city of Persia it would have been a big city how many people are we talking here this would have 
not been an easy task, and yet he does it. Somehow he does it with his influence. He gets it done. He brings about a citywide fast on behalf of the queen so that she can get ready to go to the king. And we will see that, um, how that plays out next week. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, thank you for this chapter and what you have for us in it. Father, I pray that we be women that long to learn your word, to understand your word, and to do your word. Father, I pray just as Esther, Lord, knew what she needed to do, Father God, and stepped out with Father, I pray the same thing over each of us. All of our circumstances are different. All of our lives are different. But, Lord, I know you have called each and every one of us to a purpose, Father God, that you planned before we were even born. Father, show us these plans. Help us to understand them. And, Lord, give us the courage to walk out anything that you ask of us. In the precious name of Jesus.